Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Blackfriars. How are you doing? <laughs> Wonderful. Great to be back with you. Always love coming here. Uh, we're now on week six of our series of talks under the banner Faithful Presence. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, the idea behind this series is it's all about how do we stay faithful to God in the midst of what feels like a very different value system? How do I keep following Jesus faithfully in the midst of a culture that thinks and feels very differently and often sees faith as something of an irrelevancy? And the topic I want to grapple with today is evangelism. It's mission. How do I do this well in the midst of a culture that doesn't really want to know about God and certainly doesn't want me foisting my views on other people? How do I do this well? Well, I want to take a, a much longer run up to this and start with a little bit of a story. Uh, about 20 years ago or so, I was a student at university and received a very unexpected invite to go on a retreat for leaders in and of churches uh, across the UK, Europe, and beyond. It was a really random invite. A church leader who I didn't know uh, very well said, this is a bit weird, I really feel you should come along. Uh, so off I went, little old student me, and just a whole load of really amazing leaders. It was a really uh, incredible experience for me. And the retreat was led by this really sweet old guy who somehow seemed to ooze the presence of Jesus. He was gentle and loving and kind, uh, kind of one of those people that uh, when you were talking with him, you somehow felt closer to Jesus. He was like one of those people. Well, fast forward 20 years. Uh, seven weeks ago, we went on our church retreat at Ashburnham Place. Picture of some of our amazing church family on the screen behind me. And if you haven't booked in for next year already, you can do so. The dates are in the Christchurch London calendar and all the info is there at August Bank Holiday weekend next year. So we're on our church retreat seven weeks ago. It's Friday afternoon. The session has just finished, and we're all spilling out towards the entrance of Ashburnham Place. And as I kind of walk there, uh, sitting in this huge Sherlock armchair is this little old man. And as I look at him, I recognize him immediately. He's the old guy that led the retreat that I went on 20 years ago. So I sat down next to him and said, uh, hi, you won't remember me, but I was on this retreat that you led two decades ago. Uh, it was hugely formative for me. You actually prayed for me personally. Just want to say thank you so much, and here I am right now. And he and I had a really great catch-up, and then he started looking at you. You know, you're all mingling in the foyer, all laughing and joking and being all cool. And he was like, so, so who are these people here? I said, this is the church home part of. He said, tell me what you're doing on this retreat. So I said, well, for the last year, year and a half or so, the theme of revival has been really significant for us as a church. You know, there have been moments in history where it feels like the church has come alive with God's life and power, and we want to see some of that again. I mean, it feels like our nation needs it right now. And over the last year or so, we've seen a number of people in each of our services who seemingly haven't communicated with each other feel this stirring and longing to pray for revival. And this has really shaped our leadership over the last year. We've called the church to pray for weeks at a time. We long for this ourselves. And themes of holiness and mission feel particularly important for us as a church right now. That's what we're doing here. Well, as I shared this, he gripped my arm and said, uh, Andy, this feels like a God moment. This feels like a divine appointment. He said, I want you to know I'm still in touch with leaders from around the world. And everyone I speak to is feeling what your church is feeling. Everyone I speak to is feeling that something significant, 
something, the word they keep using is unprecedented, is going to happen in the UK. They're praying for it. They're longing to see breakthrough. The, the picture language that people keep using when they talk to me is the rain is coming to the UK of life and refreshment and salvation and breakthrough. And he grabbed both my hands and said, can I pray for you right now? And can I pray for your church? I was like, you betcha. It was the sweetest moment. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that just because he said it, and just because lots of leaders that he's connected with are saying it, that this means definitely, definitely that revival is coming to the UK. None of us know that. None of us know that. But what I will say is this, that moment kind of kindled afresh in my own spirit, this longing to see breakthrough in our nation. Don't you long for it too? And what I'd say is this, is that if revival is coming to the UK, I don't want to do anything to miss out on what God might be up to. But to be honest with you, even if revival is not coming to the UK, if the pages of this book, the Bible, are true about the life that's possible when you follow Jesus, I want everything God's got for me, and I want everything God's got for this church. If Jesus himself says, look, the harvest is plentiful, and it's ripe right now. I just need workers for the harvest. I want to put my hand up and say, I'll be a worker. Our church will be the workers. Use us. And it's this that I want to speak into this morning. Whether or not revival's coming. What's the part that we play in seeing fruitfulness when it comes to mission? How do we make sure we don't miss out on anything God has for us in this area? And I want to start by reading a few verses from the New Testament letter to Corinthians. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn there. I'm going to read uh, some verses from chapters 5 and 6. They're on the screen if you want to follow along. These will be very familiar to some of you, I'm sure. Uh, this is what a guy called Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Okay, what are these verses all about? And how do they speak into the mission that God has for us? Well, I don't know if any of you have seen Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's amazing TED Talk. Uh, the whole thing is worth watching but he starts with some really interesting insight into the culture in which we live. I want to read a bit for you, and the quote will be on the screen if you want to follow along. He says this. Perhaps the simplest way into a culture and an age 
is to ask, what do people worship? People have worshipped many different things, the sun, the moon, the stars. In the 19th and 20th centuries, people worshipped the nation, the Aryan race, the communist state. What do we worship? I think future anthropologists will take a look at the books we read on self-help, self-realization, self-esteem. They'll look at the way we talk about morality as being true to oneself, the way we talk about politics as a matter of individual rights. And they'll look at this wonderful new religious ritual we have created, you know the one called the selfie. And I think they'll conclude that what we worship in our time is the self, the me, the I. I think most people would agree with that. I know I certainly do. We live in the age of the self, and he just puts it better than anyone else I know. Well, whether or not you agree with that, that is probably a near-perfect description of the city and culture to which Paul was writing the words that we read a few moments ago, the city of Corinth. Corinth lay at the hub of the Roman Empire. It was one of the most cutting-edge, tech-savvy, wealthy, prosperous cities in the whole of the Roman Empire. And in Corinth, the idolization and the promotion of the self was basically a way of life. The word that keeps coming up in Corinthians uh, more than once per chapter and more than any other book in Scripture is the word to boast. Corinth is like ground zero for boasting, for bragging in the ancient world. Uh, one of the best-selling books of this whole era, actually went across the whole empire, was written by a guy called Plutarch. And it was entitled, How to Praise Oneself Inoffensively. How to let the world know you're amazing without looking like a fool whilst doing so. This was Corinth. How well that book would sell again today. If you want a new business idea on Sunday morning. Well, in Corinth, this sense of personal advancement, of the desire of vainglory, of pride, of greed, it was infecting the Corinthian church and causing a whole load of problems as a result. Let me give you an illustration to give you a feel of some of what was going on. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of two very famous Russian writers called Fyodor Dostoevsky and Leo Tolstoy. Picture of them uh, on the screen. When I saw, saw this, I thought we've finally found Liam Thatcher's fashion icons. <laughs> there, there they are. Liam's looking at his future self. There we go. Well, uh, both of them, I'm told, never met in real life. But they had very contrasting ideas about what happens when a society forgets God, when a society abandons God. Dostoevsky felt that there would be a clear and sudden breakdown of morality. Like if a culture forgets God, there'll be some kind of crash pretty quickly. Tolstoy said, no, it's subtler than that. It's harder to see than that. It's not like a society forgets God and then everybody wanders around robbing banks and murdering people. It's more gradual. And he came up with another illustration. He said, it's more like the moment a conductor leaves the stage while an orchestra is still playing. For a while, the music continues, and you don't even notice the conductor has gone. But then what happens is beats start appearing in the wrong rhythm. A few notes start appearing in the wrong place. The blend of notes begins to grate on the ear. And what you find is this, this slow and steady descent into total confusion and to ugly noise. He says that's what happens when a society forgets God. And what can happen to a society can also happen to an individual. Now, if Rabbi Sachs is right, and we do indeed live in the culture of self, I'm embarrassed to admit there have been too many seasons in my life when my life has been shaped more by the culture of self than it has by God. And my world has revolved more around me, me, me. You know what happens in the short term when I do that? I barely notice the difference. 
In fact, the most sobering part of Tolstoy's illustration is the conductor can have left the stage and I don't even notice that he's gone. On my bad days, I can be like, oh, I didn't pray today. Didn't read the Bible. I slept in rather than go to church. Church is less of a priority for me now. And Wow, it was amazing. I got more sleep. I watched more TV. I chilled out. I saw my friends. Maybe, maybe this should become a pattern in my life. But when that begins to become a habit, over time, slowly, the music of my life begins to grate on the ear. I begin to become more irritable. Certainly, I become more selfish. I find I have less willpower to overcome destructive habits. I give up more easily when challenge comes along. I become more defensive when people try and speak into my life. It's all the inevitable fruit of the conductor leaving the stage, of living a self-sufficient life. Maybe I can start by asking a bit of a rhetorical question. Who, who is conducting the music of your life right now? Is it God? Is it you? Is it the surrounding culture? Do we even know? And how does the music of your life sound to those around you? Well, in Corinth, the conductor had left the stage some time ago. And the ugly noise of self in society was causing a whole load of problems in the Corinthian church and how people in the church were living. And Paul is at least writing some of these words to address this problem. And if I had to give you a kind of kernel of the heart of his response, if I had to distill his answer into a sentence, if I had to come up with one verse that kind of crystallizes the heart of his message, I'd come up with one of the verses we read a few moments ago. Chapter 5 and verse 20 where he says this, I implore you, be reconciled to God. When everybody else is obsessed with self, I am begging you, Corinthian church, be reconciled to God. I want to give you another illustration to give you a sense of feeling this in a slightly different way. I don't know whether any of you saw Jim Carrey's introductory speech to the Golden Globes a couple of years ago. It's basically a really effective sideswipe at both the culture of self, but also the limitations of externals to provide meaning and joy and satisfaction and life in here. And uh, I thought because he says it way better than I can by just reading the quote, I might as well show you the video clip. So uh, this is 90 seconds of you listening to Jim Carrey rather than me. This is him at the Golden Globes about two years ago. Let's play the clip now. From the upcoming film True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. because then I would be enough. <laughs> it would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. 
for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. Love that. I'm sure uh, many of you know uh, his more famous quote. Uh, Liam used it at the Alpha launch a couple of weeks ago, where he says this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. This is part of why Paul is writing these words. He says this in verse 12, one of the reasons I'm writing this, here's the reason, so you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. You see, in Corinth, it's all about seeing things. It's all about externals. It's all about chasing golden globes, about image and prosperity, about material success. And Paul's like, no, no, I'm writing so you can answer that culture. So you can show, actually, it's about what is going on in the heart. I am begging you, Corinthian church, get reconciled to God. He says it like this in verse 15. Same way, same thing, really, in a different way. He says, Jesus died for all, that those who live shouldn't live for self any longer, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Don't live for externals, Corinthian church. Don't chase seen things. Live for Jesus. Sometimes Paul has a great way of summing up some of his teaching in a sentence. He does it earlier on in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, we didn't read it because of time, but let me just read this line to you now. He says this, we live by faith, not by sight. We don't chase externals. We're not to live for golden globes. In the midst of the culture of self, I'm begging you, I, I implore you, Get reconciled to God. You know, the Corinthian church is actually a really sobering example of how easy it is even for committed followers of Jesus to get duped by externals. I beg you, says Paul, no, no, no. Don't chase silver when you can have gold. I love how Pete Gregg puts it in his book, Dirty Glory. He says this, often when I'm seeking guidance, God responds with relationship. When I say, where should I go? God says, I love you. When I ask, what should I do? He says, I'm proud of you. Time and time again, God ignores my most pressing questions in order to answer the deepest longings of my heart. I love that. Why? Because it's so often me. I come to church and my life's all about me. Where should I go? What should I do? I think Paul would say, Andy, those might be great questions, but they are secondary. There's something more important. I am begging you, make him number one. Don't make him another compartment to your life. Don't have like school and work and leisure and God. No, no, make him everything. I'm begging you, get reconciled to God. Stop chasing golden globes. Stop chasing externals. And just to be clear, this goes for religious externals as well. One of the things I said at the church retreat that I really felt I should uh, repeat today is that revival, as amazing as revival is, revival is not the answer to the longings in my heart, devotion to Jesus is. If you rebuild this central service, having planted out so many other services, if you triple, quadruple, if you're 5,000 by this time next year, that will not answer the deepest longings in your heart, devotion to Jesus will. I'm begging you, get connected with him again. And it's not just that Jesus meets the deepest longings in our heart, he sets us free from the culture of self. He redeems us from Corinthian culture. Uh, part of my background is in uh, psychology. I, I love what it says about the state of the human condition. 
I came across some really remarkable research uh, recently from a Stanford psychologist called Robert Sapolsky. A picture of him uh, on the screen comes from the Tolstoy Thatcher School of Fashion again, by the looks of it. <laughs> and uh, he's done a number of remarkable experiments. Uh, he did one where he just asked participants to think of either a selfish or a selfless thing that they had done. Just bring to mind an immoral or a moral act, a bad thing or a good thing that you have done. And then at the end of it, he offered them a free gift. Either a pen or a pencil, or secondly, some antiseptic wipes. He said those who thought about the selfish thing they had done were way, way, way more likely to pick the antiseptic wipes. He said it was almost like they wanted to clean themselves at the end of having brought that to mind. He developed this research further. He did one experiment where he asked participants to tell an untruth, to lie. Maybe big themselves up in a way that wasn't authentic to themselves. You know, I'm amazing in this area, when that's not really the case. And they could tell this lie either verbally or by writing the lie down. And again, at the end of the experiment, he offered them a free gift. Those who had lied by writing the lie down, the free gift they picked most often was soap so they could wash their hands. Those who lied verbally, the free gift they picked most often was mouthwash so they could clean their mouth. He said it wasn't just like they wanted to get clean. It was almost like they wanted to clean the part of the body that had been involved in the selfish behavior. And in research that he describes as remarkably robust, he says the simple act of thinking about our failings creates this desire in us to somehow get clean. I just find this research remarkable. Now, here's the reason I cite it. Let's say for a moment that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is right and we live in the culture of self. I have a hunch, I have a theory that what that attacks more than anything else is our self-worth, our identity, our self-value, our self-esteem. Why? Because subconsciously every single day we are reading and listening to and watching messages that say you're not beautiful enough, you're not successful enough. You're not wealthy enough. You aren't as good as these people over there. You are not enough. What's that do for the way we see ourselves in here? How are you feeling about yourself right now? Have you ever been in the midst of our culture and thought, oh, I need to somehow get clean? Here's what Paul writes. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took all the dirt so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In all his magnificent purity, we become the righteousness of God. We get clean. I don't need to clean myself anymore. Verse 17 of chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. Old, gone, new here. I'm begging you, says Paul. Don't try and live for golden globes. Get reconciled to Jesus. He'll change your life. Now, what on earth does all this have to do with mission? Because that's what we're talking about today. Well, here's the reason. It's because what God wants to do for us, verses 19 to 20, I'll come up on the screen, I'll just paraphrase. God wants to do for the world. He doesn't just want to reconcile us. He wants to reconcile the world to himself, and he wants to do it through those whom he has already reconciled. We've been reconciled to God. We're now part of his plan to change the world. And he calls us his ambassadors. Those whom he has reconciled are now his ambassadors. What does it mean for me to be an ambassador? What does it look like for me to be an ambassador? Well, I'm really glad you asked the question. 
Uh, as I was trying to think of an illustration, uh, what does an ambassador look like? I I'm not sure this illustration is the best one, but uh, here we are, so uh, bear with me. Uh, what I thought of was the shop assistants at Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, have you seen them? Uh, there we are. I've, I've um, blurred out part of their bodies. Didn't want to be unhelpful to anyone. Um, um, I'm, I'm from a part of the UK where we do not have an Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, I couldn't believe it when I moved to London. Uh, Semi-naked men uh, walking around with, with muscles where I did not know it was possible to have muscles. Uh, it's like walking, talking adverts for the products inside. Uh, I did briefly contemplate going in and handing in my CV, see if I could uh, join the team. Uh, the, these guys are ambassadors. By the clothes that they wear, and their finely toned tans, and their rippling torsos, they're saying, I am representing another king and kingdom inside this shop. And you too can look like me, and live like me, and be like me, if you come in and sample what's inside. That's an ambassador, and that's what Jesus is calling us to do, only in a very different way. <laughs> and here's the reason. Work with me. <laughs> here's the reason. Because Jesus' kingdom is not about externals. It's not about seeing things. It's about unseen things. We aren't to market the church in the same way the world, the culture of self, would market a product. We're not to put our best-looking people on the front door and our best-looking people on the stage as if to say to the watching world, come to church for all the good-looking people. I mean, with the best will in the world. That ain't going to work in this service, is it? Let's be honest. Maybe Bethnal Green. Maybe Sutton. Not here. No, no, no. This is a kingdom of internals. This is what we're to live out. This is why reconciliation with God matters so much. We are to live out the cleansing and the freedom and the endless joy and the peace and the hope that come through reconciliation with God. This is our call. An ambassador is somebody who represents not themselves, but the king and the kingdom from which they have come. And therefore, the key to being an effective ambassador is first and foremost personal connection to the king that we represent. If our call is to represent God to the world, then to be an ambassador, we first of all have to get to know God in all his brilliant and radiant glory. I implore you, get reconciled to God. And the brightness of our reflection to the world, I think, will be in direct proportion to the strength of our connection to him. The better we know him, the better we'll reflect Jesus to the world. This is where effective mission starts. I implore you, get reconciled to God. But this is not where effective mission ends. You see, you see, to be an ambassador, it might begin with getting to know God in all his brilliant and radiant glory, getting to know the king. But then there's a second part, and it's this. We have to go into another kingdom and represent the king of our kingdom to the best of our ability. That's what it means for us to be an ambassador. I was really challenged afresh recently by just a very, really simple passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. It's a guy who's been heavily demonized. And he comes to Jesus and gets healed, gets delivered. He's totally free. He's in his right mind for the first time in years. Now, having been set free, he comes to Jesus. And the verses say, he begs Jesus, Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus, I want to stay with you. I want to spend my life in worship services and Bible studies. And Jesus says, no. He says, instead, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And so he does. And so must we. This is what it means to be an ambassador. 
We might want to spend our life worshipping God, getting to know him better, but Jesus says, no. You're now to go into a different kingdom and represent me to the best of your ability. Now, if you are anything like me, this is where you go gulp. Especially if you're going into a kingdom that's all about self, that's all about show. Why? Because in the kingdom of show and self, I'm reminded how bad I am at this. I feel really insignificant. I feel really weak. A really goofy, really goofy illustration. But when I was a kid, my dad had the most amazing whistle. Like, if we were out playing, like, he could just come outside, put his fingers to his lips, and honestly, his whistle could be heard like 25 miles away. It was like absolutely incredible. Is there anyone that can actually do that? Can you, can you do that, the whistle thing? You could do it. Want to have a go? Oh, wow. We just, we stand in awe. That's like, oh, there we go. That, that's my dad. That's, that's not actually my dad. But like, it, like, literally, he'd do that. Other people's children would come. It's like, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Contrastingly, my whistle is embarrassing. It is pants. It pales. Into, like, if I tried that with my kids, I'm like, hey, kids, come in. I just can't. That's how I feel at doing evangelism. This is a great illustration. <laughs> like, I, I feel like other people have got this clear trumpet call. Come to Jesus. They're so eloquent. They're so concise. They're so brilliant. They manage to smoothly weave God into every conversation. Everyone they talk to seems to come to faith in Jesus. And here's me. Come to Jesus. I just feel rubbish in comparison. If, if you can relate to that, my biggest encouragement to you is the Corinthian church knows exactly how you feel. You see, one of the problems in Corinth was because it was such a showy culture. There were all these like, religiously impressive superior people going around. In fact, Paul, if you read through Corinthians, uh, when you read the phrase super apostles, that's what Paul is sarcastically calling. Oh, they seem so charismatic, so intelligent, so brilliant, so charming. And one of the things these super apostles do is they belittle Paul. They're like, oh, he doesn't look very much, does he? He's not very attractive. He's not very eloquent. His public speaking isn't up to much. And look, he suffers. He struggles. How could God ever use somebody who suffers and struggles in life? And if that's what they're saying about Paul, imagine how the Corinthian church felt. Like, oh, how could God ever use us? Paul, Paul basically tries to address this head on. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, no, no, no. We are all God's co-workers now. If you've been reconciled to God, this does not, this cannot rely on the gifted few. You are now called, weak as you are, to go into a different kingdom and represent Christ. This is the message of reconciliation. You might feel like all you've got is a, go anyway. This is your call. Let, let me bamboozle you with mathematics for a moment. I want you to imagine that I am the greatest preacher the world has ever seen. And imagine, because I'm so good, our entire strategy for mission is every single night I will preach the good news about Jesus. And because I am so good, because I'm so compelling, every night 1,000 people come to faith in Jesus. Tonight, 1,000 people. Monday, 1,000 people. Tuesday, another 1,000 people. Wednesday, another 1,000 come to faith in Jesus. I mean, it's just amazing. Here's a question. How long until every person on earth has heard the good news about Jesus? The answer, approximately, on today's population, is about 20,534 years. Mission cannot rely on the gifted few. Now, here's another question. I want you to imagine that everybody I speak to in Christchurch today, 
across the different services I speak at, represents the entirety of the Christian church on earth. Let's imagine, for mathematics sake, 500 people across all the services I speak at today. And let's imagine that people find this idea of being an ambassador so compelling that everyone in Christchurch who hears this decides, you know what, I'm going to live as an ambassador. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm going to make a whole load of mistakes, my whistle, but I'm going to do it anyway. And because they're living this out, rather than 1,000 people a night, all they do is in the next 12 months, they lead one person to faith in Jesus. Not 1,000 a night, one a year. But because that new Christian is now also reconciled to God, they are now also an ambassador. So in year two, that new Christian also thinks, I'm an ambassador. I'll lead someone to faith in Christ too. And in year three, that new Christian also leads someone to faith in Christ. Question, how long until everybody on earth has heard the good news about Jesus? The answer, approximately, 23 years and three months. 23 years and three months versus 20 and a half thousand. This is God's plan. And it involves all of us. I would love it. All that happens when I become a follower of Jesus is our worship, Bible study, get to know the king. Oh, that would be amazing. Jesus says, no. Return home. Tell your story. Message of reconciliation. All of us are involved. We might be weak. We'll make mistakes. It'll be embarrassing at times, but this is our call. And one of the key themes of Corinthians is this. As you go out in weakness, God's power will be made even more evident in the culture of show and self. So just go, weak as you are, and God will use you, and God will bless you. And Paul encourages the Corinthians with a prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 49. Chapter 6, verse 1, he talks about a day of favor, day of salvation. The context of Isaiah 49 is basically for all the world it looks like God's kingdom has lost. Like God's plan to fill the earth with his goodness and glory is basically defeated. And any idea of Yahweh will soon be confined to the annals of history. People in Isaiah 49 are saying things like this. Verse 4, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. The Lord has forgotten me, verse 14. You ever felt like that when it comes to mission? We have fished all night and caught nothing. Well, along comes the prophet with some words from God. He says this, God's going to make you a covenant for the people. You're going to say to captives, come out. To those in darkness, be free. They're going to come from afar, from the north, from the west. I'll beckon to the nations, lift my banner to the peoples. It's an epic chapter of hope. Paul says this, this day of favor, this day of salvation, it has come right now. So go in your weakness and you'll see God's salvation power at work. One of my favorite stories right now is about a guy called Lee Strobel. I shared this with the Alpha team on training night uh, with the staff team a couple of weeks ago. Uh, He's um, a guy, he used to be a very well-known atheist and went on a two-year journey investigating the claims for the Christian faith. And after two years of careful study, became convinced, I think Jesus is real, I want to follow him. And he wrote his story into a book called The Case for Christ, which is excellent. Uh, That's since been made into a movie. I haven't seen it and cannot vouch for it. Well, uh, Lee Strobel uh, tells a story about when he was a, a young Christian. He's not been following Jesus very long. He's working for a newspaper. And he feels what he thinks is a nudge from God. Go into the newsroom and share your faith with the person who's there. 
And Lee Strobel's like, oh, no, scary, no, go on, just go and share your faith. He's like, I don't have all the answers, just go share your faith. And as he wrestles this through, he thinks, I, I think God's speaking here. So into the newsroom he goes. And there's one guy there who's a very well-known atheist in the kind of office culture. And Lee Strobel kind of swallows hard. He says, hey, hey, mate, do you want to come to church on Sunday? And this guy's like, no. You know I'm an atheist. I don't want to go to church. No, why are you inviting me? And Lee Strobel's like, well, you, you might like the music. You might find the talks accessible. I, I don't want to go. Well, I've been on this two-year journey looking into it. I think there's something to it. It's changing my life. Why don't you give it a try? I do not want to go. And he just shuts Lee Strobel down at every corner. And Lee Strobel wanders away from that interaction, feeling a total failure. But more, he's like, God, what was that about? I thought you spoke to me. I heard him share this recently, and he said, I asked God about that for many years. And he said, God gave me the answer over a decade later. He said, I was speaking at an event, and at the end of it, a guy comes up to me, sticks out his hand, and says, uh, I want to thank you for the difference you've made in my life. And Lee Strobel's like, that's great. Who are you? This guy says, well, over 10 years ago, I was really hard up financially. And a friend of mine got me a job tiling the floor of a newspaper newsroom. He says, one day I was on my hands and knees tiling the floor. I was behind a pillar, and you walked in. You had no idea I was there. And you started inviting this atheist to church, and he didn't want to know. And every idea you came up with, every question you asked, he just totally shut you down. You need to know that during that conversation, God was working on my heart. He said, after you two had left the newsroom, I picked up the phone, I called my wife and said, darling, this Sunday we need to go to church. He said, that Sunday, I became a follower of Jesus. My wife became a follower of Jesus. And my teenage son became a follower of Jesus. All through a totally failed conversation. Do you know what I think Paul would say to a story like that? I think he'd say this, I tell you. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. So just go in your weakness. Go with your limited answers. Go with your limited eloquence and God's power will be at work and 23 years and three months time, the world could be changed. One of the questions that Isaiah 64 asks is this. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? Is it too small a thing for us to be involved in a plan that changes the world? To see one person come to faith this year as I said earlier, we had a really amazing church retreat seven weeks ago. From my point of view, it really felt like God met with us as a church. And the highlight for me came right at the end. We'd heard the last talk. We had sung the last song. And Joel Wade, who leads our e-service, gets up and he says, I just feel we should finish our time by reading a few verses from Isaiah chapter 6. And he said, as I read this, I want you to see the link between holiness and mission. And he just read the passage for me at least, there was just a wonderful sense of the presence of Jesus in the room. And he talked of Isaiah seeing God in all his amazing glory. Angels round the throne, holy, holy, holy. Like there's nothing like this. And Isaiah just feels unclean. And I live among an unclean people and God comes and cleanses him. And then God asks this question. It kind of ripples across the heavens. Who will I send and who will go for us? And cleansed Isaiah says, here I am, send me. You know, sometimes when we preach at Christchurch, I think it's great to bring new insights out of Scripture. As I was praying about what should I share today, I just felt God simply say, I want you to remind the church of that moment. Whether or not you were there. 
and to ask the question again, are we going to be a church? Are we going to be a people who say, I will set myself apart for you? All the questions about where should I go, what should I do, they're secondary. I'll devote myself to you. We receive his cleansing. And then are we going to be the people who go into a different kingdom and say, I'll, I'll be a sent one. I'll go. Will that be me? Will that be you? Why don't we stand to our feet? Maybe the band could come up. Uh, we're going to respond in worship now. And I want to encourage you as we sing to use this as a way of maybe even redevoting yourself to God. Maybe you've come into church today asking secondary questions. And what Jesus actually wants to tell you is, I love you and I'm so proud of you. And I want to know you more. Maybe it's a moment to receive his cleansing again and to realize that in Christ, with the righteousness of God, that's an extraordinary thought. But once we've worshipped at the end of the service, there'll be a prayer team at the front for anybody who wants to receive prayer. And it may be that you want to come forward as a way of saying, I, I need God's power if I'm to be a sent one. If I'm to go out on mission. I, I particularly felt as I was praying for this service in particular that maybe there would be some people here who feel like the disciples at the end of John's Gospel, I fished all night and caught nothing. Like the people in Isaiah 49, when it comes to mission, I've labored in vain. Come get prayer. This could be a new day. But let's start by making the main thing the main thing. Let's lift our gaze to Jesus, worship him into his holiness and glory, and give ourselves to him again.